Detailed in the Lucas Brothers' evocative personal essay, Our Brother Kaizen is the Reckoning of Split Trajectories, theirs from their beloved family friend Kaizen's. A neighbor in the same housing project, Garn Spires, Kaizen becomes a big brother to the Lucas Brothers after their father is incarcerated, babysitting them and protecting them against bullies who try to steal their bikes. In their storytelling, the Lucas brothers are transparent about how illegal activities are concentrated around Garden Spires, and how unlike Kaizen, their ability to move out of Spires after their mother gets a job promotion gives them access to a better public school education, which puts them on the pathway to college and eventually law school. Simultaneously, the Lucas brothers are quick to critique their academic studies, and specifically, how studying philosophy and adopting nihilism allow them to intellectualize their childhood trauma but not to confront it. While deeply personal, their essay is an exploration of how institutions, academic and governmental, fail individuals, and specifically how the legal system fails Black people. They look at what it means to love someone who has been written off because of their harmful behavior and how, as they write towards the end of their essay, the majority fails to contextualize the actions of the oppressed, focusing on the effects instead of the causes. We invite you to listen to the Lucas Brothers reading their moving and powerful essay ahead. My name is Robbie Pollock. I'm your host for the evening. I am Penn, America's Prison and Justice Writing Program Manager. I am an artist and musician, and I'm really, really happy to be here with you. Uh, tonight, we're going to hear from the Lucas Brothers firsthand. They'll be telling their stories, and I'm not going to make up anything fake that they're not going to do, uh, even though I want to. All right. I'm here to shamelessly also plug my book, which I hopefully will pop up on the screen. It's written for children of incarcerated parents by my wife, Emily Gallagher, illustrated with love by me and approved by dozens of families. It talks about a girl going to visit her dad in prison. It's awesome. Um, that's all I'm gonna say for that. But tonight we are here because of Pops the Club, which does amazing things with children all over the country. Uh, all you Pops people, out there listening on the call i want you to stamp your feet clap your hands do something elbow the person next to you talk to your imaginary friend and be like yo that's me i i got this all right i don't want to take too much more time i do want to thank all the partners who helped make this happen Streamyard, and all the people who put this together and of course without any further ado wait 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 wait, wait, wait. there's people literally waiting to like push buttons and make things happen. I want to tell you about the Lucas Brothers a little bit. Uh, you might know them from their animated Fox series, Lucas Brothers Moving Company, or their Netflix stand-up special on drugs, or their amazing appearance in their film, 22 Jump Street. These brothers are intellectuals, they're comics, they're funny, they're incredibly charming, and they are wrestling fans. And I think that's enough. I'll be back later. Please make some noise or like pretend to make noise for the Lucas Brothers. Thank you so much. That was man. a beautiful intro. Beautiful thank you, intro. thank you, thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having us, and thanks, Pop. Um, I mean, I'm just we're just excited. Yeah, to be we're, here. we're so excited to be here. This is uh, this is amazing. So, <laughs> so you were saying your favorite you, was Bret Hart, right? Or, or you like? You no, like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. I I am an Undertaker uh, okay. fan. That's a, yeah, that's a respectable number one. You know, for me. I mean, does it get like metaphorical? Um, you know what? I, I was determined not to ask questions. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you um, you're gonna do like a lecture on um, philosophy, right? Right now. 
We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dabble in some philosophy. We're gonna tell our story to the best of our ability. We wrote this essay uh, a couple two months ago about our cousin, and it's his anniversary of his death coming up pretty soon. So we want to share that because we feel like it, you know, touches on a lot of important stuff that pops covers. Thank you. I'm gonna get out of your way. Take it away, and everyone, open up your hearts and your minds to the amazing, wonderful Lucas Brothers. Appreciate Thank you, Robbie. And again, everyone out there listening, uh, we really appreciate you guys tuning in to hear us tell our story mm -hmm. to the best of our ability. And, you know, you know, not just listening and watching. Too. Listening and watching. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's the radio. I think it's the, it feels like the radio. But, uh, yeah, we, we just we have a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. we, we grew up in a family with an incarcerated parent. Our father went to prison when we were seven, six or seven. Six or seven. And it, it's fundamentally shaped our lives right. for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, we have a cousin, a friend of ours, actually, but more like a cousin. His name was Kaizen. Mm -hmm. He also grew up uh, fatherless, and I'm sure, I think his mother might have been in and out of it. Yeah, yeah. He went to prison a few times. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that had an impact on our lives as well. And he had a, he died last year. Right. And that prompted us to, to write this essay that we're going to share with you guys. So we're going to share this essay with you guys. You want to start? I'll start. Yeah. So it's a crisp, sunny day on Myrtle Avenue in Irvington, New Jersey. Summer is slowly winding down and school starts in a few weeks. Like most summer days on the block, folks chill on their porches enjoying the sun and the latest neighborhood gossip. The birds chirp harmoniously like bone thugs. All seems right with the world. Then a loud gunshot, another shot, another. Screams ring out across the neighborhood. People run for their lives, panicking. A man with dreadlocks in his late 30s, dressed in body armor and carrying a high-powered rifle, casually strolls down the block. Moments earlier, uh, he fatally shoots a father of two in the neck and he intends to kill more. The man aims his rifle at a neighbor of almost 30 years, calmly pulling the trigger. She narrowly evades death. He walks a couple more feet before reaching our childhood home, a home his grandfather owned. He walks through the side corridor connected to the back of the house and patiently reloads his rifle. Sirens blare as cops close in. After today, the man will be called a murderer, mass shooter and a domestic terrorist. However, back when we first met him in the 1980s, he was just Kaizen Cross. That's right. We called him cousin, but he was more like a big brother to us. We first met Kaizen when we all lived in a notorious housing project in North named the Garden Spires, two high-rise brick buildings built in the 1960s. Oddly enough, there were no gardens in the ghetto. No, just concrete rats and shitty elevators. It was erected two years before the Nork Rebellion, one of, one of the many race rebellions throughout the U.S. in 1967 during President uh, LBJ's war on poverty. LBJ was hoping to combat indigence by providing affordable housing to the working poor. At first, things looked promising. Our grandmother, Ann Crowder, and her abusive ex-husband, Willie, moved to Nork from High Point, North Carolina, toward the end of the Second Great Migration in 1970, when more than 5 million Black people from the South moved North and West. Initially, they lived on South 14th Street in the Century Ward, but in the early 80s, they moved to the Spires. Willie, our grandfather, who eventually went to prison for murdering his girlfriend at church, worked as a maintenance man for the housing project. By the time we were born in 1985, crack had decimated the city, mm -hmm. and the Spires transformed into a hotbed for criminality. Dealers sold drugs wholesale on some floors. In his book, United, Senator Cory Booker, the former mayor of Newark, wrote that the Spires functioned as a drive through People didn't even have to get out of their cars to buy drugs. The dealers catered to them with speed and efficiency that would have made McDonald's jealous. Eventually, things got so bad in the spires that Cory Booker staged his now infamous 10-day hunger strike to raise awareness and 
win political points against longtime Mayor Sharp James, whom he battled in an epic street fight for the mayorship with North. Unfortunately, some members of our family contributed to the decline of the Spires and North. For instance, our dad helped facilitate the drug trade uh, by acting as an enforcer for a prominent gang in the city. From 1985 until 1991, he and his crew fought for territory in the Spires while the U.S. government waged a vicious war on drugs. Many people died during this war. Eventually, our dad got arrested for a litany of gang-related crimes, leaving us to fend for ourselves in the concrete jungle. It was in this precarious environment that we bonded with Kaizen, a fellow bastard of North. Kaizen's mom was addicted to drugs, and his father bailed on him when he was a baby. Our mom dated his uncle for a moment, which brought us into close contact with his family. He would babysit us when our mom had to work her second job at a liquor store. Strangely, Kaizen wasn't the only eventual murderer to babysit us. We had another guy by the name of Khalil who ended up killing someone after a dispute at a North bar. Nevertheless, they were exceptional babysitters. Khalil would rip and run with our Uncle Keith, a legendary figure in the streets of North with an impeccable sense of style and penchant for women in the nightlife. Uncle Keith got arrested after a shootout with cops in Virginia. We attended his marriage to our Aunt Kathy in prison. And despite the location, it was a beautiful wedding. It was. Beautiful wedding. But they, they subsequently divorced. Mm-hmm. But, but we digress. Uh, our, our fortunes changed in 1992 because Bill Clinton got elected. We're actually kidding. Uh, that dude was terrible for poor black horrible communities. Poor black it was very horrible. Mm-hmm. His policies locked up more brothers than Kawhi Leonard in the playoffs. That's right. Our fortunes changed because we moved from the Spires into a three-family home on a 300 block of Myrtle Avenue in Irvington, New Jersey. That's a township right next to North. Right. So we were able to move because our mom got a new job at the VA hospital. It was a safer neighborhood than the Spires and only occasionally called Murder Avenue by the locals. Our portion of the street was a particular merit uh, as most of the families owned their homes. Right. Wait, where were we? Dating back to the 1960s. There you go. (laughs) Kaizen's great-grandfather, a man we all affectionately called uh, great-granddaddy, owned the house we, uh, we lived in. He was a World War II vet and an all-around swell guy who loved watching old school wrestling. We moved into a one-room attic apartment on the third floor with our mom. And at the same time, Kaizen, his baby brother, our grandma Alice. Uh, she wasn't really our grandma. She wasn't really our grandmother, but we just called her grandma. And she was the daughter of granddaddy. Yeah. It's, it's, the nomenclature in our family is a little weird. That's but right. We, we all, they moved into the second floor. Yeah. And we moved into the attic. And yeah. after the move, we spent even more time with Kaizen and the Crossing family. Yeah, we'd throw barbecues and play pickup basketball in a game called Manhunt. And Kaizen was an adept uh, Manhunt player who knew how to locate discreet hiding spots, making it impossible to find them at night. Yeah, it was very impossible. It was, it was tough. And uh, we had so much fun. And for a time, Kaizen was one of the few male figures in our lives uh, to help us navigate the murky waters of being fatherless boys in Newark. Yeah, because all the young boys in our neighborhood looked up to him. I mean... It, what was not to like about him? Mm-hmm. He was extremely charismatic. Right. Uh, he was very intelligent. Mm-hmm. He was um, just funny. He was the life of any party. The life of any party. He was a gifted joke teller as well, with an uncanny ability to mimic others. He would mimic us. Yeah, he mimicked mm-hmm. us all the time. Uh, and uh, he was also the oldest among us, so mm-hmm. uh, he was an, a natural leader, and we all looked up to him. And he led with zero fear. One summer, our bike got stolen by a neighborhood bully by the name of Pierre. Pierre was an asshole. He was an asshole. He, wore he, braces. he, wore he was braces. a terrible human being. He was a terrorist. Just a terrorist. And a uh, <laughs> bike got stolen. We went running and crying to Kaizen. And Kaizen didn't hesitate to go searching for the bike. No, he didn't. And after a couple of hours, he uh, triumphantly returned with our bike. And he made sure to beat the shit out of Pierre. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and no one ever stole our bike again. No, no, no. Never happened. Because for Kaizen, if you mess with one of us, you mess with him. Mm-hmm. And he was willing to defend us since none of our dads were around. Yeah. So, but uh, things started to take a, a shift for Kaizen because 
when you're in Irvington and, and Newark's dangerous streets, mm-hmm. there's only so much you can do with your hands, you know? Kaizen eventually decided to carry a gun for protection. And we, we can actually vividly recall the moment he uh, he showed it to us. He showed it to us. It was, a ni- it was 1995, which he had just purchased uh, gold fronts uh, for his teeth <laughs> because he was, uh, Kaizen was obsessed with the Wu-Tang Clan, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. particularly uh, Ghostface and Raekwon. And they both wore, oh, Raekwon wore, wore gold fronts, so he was trying to emulate them. So while Kaizen obsessed uh, over the Wu-Tang, we developed an everlasting adoration for the more subdued Gangsta weed loving bone thugs and harmony. And it caused some some friendly friction between the but friction between the mm-hmm. between us. So for an entire day, we debated which was the better group. Bone thugs and harmony or Wu Tang. Wu Tang or Bone Thugs. Bone Thugs or Wu Tang. We went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We advocated for Bone, naturally, because we said, what are the odds of finding five dudes who uh, uh who rap and sing in harmony? At the right. same time, it's, it's impossible, right? I mean, right. A much, you have a much higher chance of finding, you know, nine dudes who kind of rap differently, but, you know, live in the same house, housing right. project. And we were also thinking, we thought Bone was more successful at mm-hmm. the time because they just won a Grammy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we thought that they were quietly more revolutionary in terms of their rap styles. But Kaizen vehemently disagreed. He did. Uh, he did not budge. Mm-hmm. He argued that Wu was more experimental and iconic. He said that their fusion of Kung Fu and the 5% of philosophy was uh, uh, remarkable. Was remarkable. He was also obsessed with like the mafioso themes, the idea Horatio Alger story of going from poverty to you know the Scarface level uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. of wealth. And so we we're going back and forth. We're going back and forth. And most uh, of the women and the children prefer Bone Thugs. Right, right, right. And uh, most of the older guys uh, prefer Wu Tang. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> so we're going back and forth. And then he he playfully showed us his. Uh, his uh his his small stainless steel nine millimeter nine millimeter gun. That's right. That was the and first time he showed it. Yeah. Nine millimeter gun. It was small, and that abruptly ended the debate. Yeah. Because in general, logic and evidence should win debates. Right. But in the hood, guns trump trump vote. They trump vote. They trump vote. Sure. So <laughs> from uh, fourth to sixth grade, we moved between Irvington and Newark. Uh, after some publications voted Newark the most dangerous city in the country, our mom decided to get us the fuck out. In the reverse order, uh, second great migration, we moved from North back to High Point, North Carolina. And so during our time there, uh, our mom remarried our stepfather. And our, and our, stepfather, and our, our stepfather and our mom, they had a pretty tumultuous relationship. Oh, yeah. They, they, were, they, they fought like crazy, yeah. verbally and physically. It got real bad. They divorced when we were 16. Yeah. and, and But despite the fighting and, and our stepdad's addictions to various things mm-hmm. like Bobby Brown. Mostly Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown and cocaine. A lot of Bobby Brown. It was, I think he might have done coke. But it was, but, mostly but, but it was a lot of Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and, but things were relatively stable for us for a while. And we finally had a two-parent household and we were able to go to decent mm-hmm. public schools. Yep. And, um, and yeah. we excelled academically. We excelled academically. But unfortunately, Kaizen did not have a similar opportunity. He stayed in Irvington and Newark and uh, he finished high school. But he, he couldn't go to college. His grades weren't good enough. And he gradually became uh, involved in criminal activity. Right. So in 1998, uh, he was arrested for selling weed in the school zone. This was his first arrest. The schools, I mean, the court sentenced him to three years in prison, which commenced his tumultuous relationship with the criminal justice system. Right. So while Kaizen struggled with the law, uh, we continued to succeed in school. And uh, when Kaizen was released from prison and returned to his old way of life in Newark, we were actually preparing to go to college at the College of New Jersey. At TCNJ, we studied philosophy. Right. And, and as we became more enmeshed with Western philosophy, we uh, sort of started to drift away from religion and spirituality. And we started to embrace atheistic materialism, bordering on nihilism. 
We also started listening to way too much. We radio started listening radio. to a lot of radio. Too much radio. Yeah, it was, it was it making too us too many sad white guys. <laughs> we listened to sad white guys yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. help us understand the, the hood. Yeah, and so and so as we were listening to Radiohead and uh and, and our and our academic pursuits sort of brought us into contact with philosophers such as Søren Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. Thomas Hobbes, Immanuel Kant, Nietzsche, Sartre, Camus. Again, a lot of sad, sad dead white guys. Sad dead white guys. We were listening to uh, sad white guys, <laughs> and we were reading sad dead white guys. It was a, it was a, a combination of uh, sadness, but uh, but tragedy back home would push us even closer to nihilism. Mm-hmm. When one of our favorite uncles, our uncle Al, yeah. he was a uh, you know he was a drug dealer for a part, but he he started he started changing his he changed life his life around. around. He just became he sort of became the main uh, uh, father figure in our in our lives. Right. But he also suffered from PTSD and uh, various uh, mental health issues, right. and uh, he eventually uh, committed suicide. He killed himself. Uh, he jumped to his, to his death from a high-rise building in North, during our sophomore year of uh, college. And his death fundamentally altered our perception, making us more morose and sullen. You see, existentialism uh, pro- provided a comprehensive system to understand better the alienation, isolation, and despair experienced by impoverished young Black men in a, a largely affluent white world. Religion was inadequate. So philosophy sort of enabled us to assess our material conditions logically. But this intellectual understanding did not address our emotional distress. No, you cannot rational you cannot rationalize away pain and trauma. That's right. And it would appear it would appear that we and Kaizen were worlds apart as we sat on a manicure lawns at our college debating Kantian metaphysics with privileged students of all walks of life. While Kaizen braved the harsh winters of Newark in search of money for his growing family. On the inside, however, we all suffer from acute post-traumatic stress disorder as as a result of growing up in a war-torn inner city. Fatherless. Fatherless, too. And we were we were both exposed to violence, which had an insidious impact on our psychological health. According to the National Institutes of Health, inner-city students that experience violence are more likely to be depressed, to contemplate suicide, and to abuse substances. Our issues with depression, suicide, and substance abuse materialized uh, during our time in law school. At Duke and NYU. And Kaizen's did on the streets of Newark. That's right. People don't like to talk about mental health. They don't. Back in Newark, there was a stigma against folks who openly acknowledged struggling with it. Specifically, they would be stigmatized as crazy motherfuckers. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than seeing the issue as a matter of degrees, the community drew a rigid dichotomy between, between normal and uh, insane. No one wanted to be deemed mad. So instead of talking about our emotional distress openly and in a vulnerable way, we adopted strategies to cope. That's right. People have different ways of uh, rationalizing disturbing thoughts. In college, we turned to philosophy and sports. Kaizen preferred violence, drugs, and alcohol. But none of us saw a psychotherapist. We couldn't afford it. No. And this isn't just an issue in the hood. It's not. Uh, It's pervasive throughout society. At Duke and NYU Law School, we saw firsthand how the elites treated their mental health issues. That's right. Our classmates heeded a strict code of silence to avoid being perceived as weak in such a competitive environment. Nevertheless, a significant number of them suffer from severe mental health issues and abuse substances. A few of our classmates in uh, law school even committed suicide. In fact, we know more people who committed suicide from law school than from uh, the inner city. Yeah. Uh, but during our time in law school, the, the stress of it, the, the, competitive, the competitive nature of it all, just, the, just being, being from where we were from and going into this new world of law school, we... We didn't know how to deal with it. We right. didn't have therapy. So we started to turn to drugs and alcohol to deal with our mental health issues. In the stress of law. And it was jarring, it was jarring to study the insidious nature of our criminal justice system with white law students 
while some committed the same crimes that would land Black people in jail. Yeah, we couldn't help but consider the irony of it all as we consume drugs. Like, what if the law was designed in such a way to criminalize Black behavior while simultaneously decriminalizing white behavior? The 100 to 1 cocaine to crack ratio, which places tougher uh, penalties on crack usage than cocaine, seems way more plausible if written by a white lawmaker addicted to coke, who, implicit, who implicitly believes in white superiority. We started recognizing the hypocritical, often absurd duality of our legal system. Whites create, interpret, and enforce the law. Those who violate the law are deemed criminals, fair enough. Whites and Blacks use drugs at similar rates, yet somehow Blacks are arrested at disproportionately higher rates for the use and distribution of drugs. How is that possible? It's only possible if Black criminality is embedded in the premise of our robust legal system. In other words, if Blackness is the crime, the mass incarceration, generational poverty, segregation, and police brutality necessarily follow. In 2008, as we started to question the validity of the law, especially our drug laws, Kaizen was arrested for drug and gun-related charges. He was a father looking to make money during the recession when jobs were scarce, especially for convicted felons struggling with addiction and mental health disorders. So he sold weed, which wasn't yet a perfectly legal billion-dollar industry. Meanwhile, as our depression and anxiety worsened, uh, one of us attempted suicide for the, for the first, first time. time. And then the other one would try to you know, keep things balanced. Uh, yeah. We dropped out of law school and we developed stoner comedic personas to justify our growing substance abuse problem and we pursued entertainment careers. Instead of therapy, we sought fame and fortune to mask our pain. And initially the returns were stellar. We got into film, TV, and stand-up. We performed on The Tonight Show multiple times. We recorded an hour of stand-up special for Netflix. And we made a lot of money, but none of that shit mattered mm -hmm. at the end of the day because our PTSD remained untreated. So we continued to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. And we were spiraling out of control. I mean, we were literally seeking to destroy ourselves. After a particularly bad night with drugs and alcohol, we decided to try sobriety. We went to therapy for the very first time at the age of 31. And our therapist, yes, we do share a therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to pay twice for the same sad story, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> she diagnosed us with PTSD and depression. We took the Adverse Childhood Experience Quiz, which examines abuse, neglect, and other hallmarks of a rough childhood. Our A score was 8 out of 10. Eight out of 10, a uh, number closer to 10 puts you at a greater at greater risk for issues like depression, suicide, PTSD, and drug abuse, meaning this might be the only quiz in history for which a high score makes you immediately want to kill yourself. And so that's a crazy <laughs> quiz. <laughs> but, you know, we had the fortune of seeing a therapist taking the ACE quiz and having comedy. Uh, Kaizen never saw a therapist, nor did he take the ACE quiz, nor did he have an outlet like stand-up comedy to openly talk about his trauma. His mental ailments remained untreated, which is likely why he continued to abuse substances and openly started to discuss dying in a blaze of glory. There are many ways uh, to commit suicide, and one way is suicide by cop, uh, in which a person deliberately behaves in a threatening manner with the intent of provoking a lethal response from police. Tyson will talk about going out like Scarface all, all, very often. Yeah. And most in the family thought he was probably interpreting rap lyrics too literally. Despite several run-ins with the law, no one thought Kaizen capable of committing murder, especially the killing of a next-door neighbor on our block with whom he was friends. He was an almost 40-year-old father of two beautiful girls who loved his family and valued his friendships. But depression is a real sickness that can destroy any person. We think after the death of his mother in, 2000, in August 2018, we believe... Kaizen, our cousin and brother, lost his will to live, sought to end his life when he walked down the block and opened fire in August 2019. The final time we saw Kaizen was on May 3rd, 2019, a few months before his death. We were performing stand-up comedy in Newark in front of our family. 
We hadn't been back in, uh, in a few years. So we did a 30 minute set touching on issues such as drug abuse, ending gentrification and suicide. We quoted Camus who once said, there's only one really serious philosophical problem and that is suicide. Deciding whether or not life is worth living is to answer the fundamental question in philosophy. All other questions follow from that. In our set, we asked ourselves if life was worth living. And we ultimately conclude that life is certainly worth living Absolutely. Uh, because of our love of Missy Elliott. Mm -hmm. right? if, <laughs> if you love Missy, you wouldn't want to. Is it worth it? All right. yeah, it's, it's a, a long, it's a long it's set a long for set a mediocre joke. Mediocre joke. But nevertheless, <laughs> you get it. You get it. <laughs> After the show, we hung out with our father, Uncle Keith from earlier, who married our aunt who in a prison, and Kaizen and our friend uh, from out of town. Our father, who turned his life around completely right uh he's, he's no longer gang banging he's like he trains kids in boxing right and uh he, he couldn't stay out for for late he had to go go to sleep till he had to wake up early he's actually training an, an, an olympic boxer our father's training an olympic boxer so, so he's like he, he completely changed his life around. right, right. So, yeah, it's remarkable so we were chilling with uncle keith our homegirl, and kaizen for a few more hours and then things started to get kind of strange yeah our, our cousin asked us if we wanted to what do you ask this? He wanted, he wanted to know if we wanted to go to a place to have a foursome. And I was like, <laughs> look, I don't want to have sex with my identical twin brother. That's it's too like, weird. It's I don't, like I don't you're, you're watching yourself have sex in 3D. It's very <laughs> odd. Uh, and so we, we, we rejected his, uh, <laughs> his, his proposition. But, but, but something strange also happened. We, uh, our Uncle Keith uh, started telling us about his situation with cops. He got into a shootout mm -hmm. with cops, right? That's right. He got into a shootout, which is ironic considering Kaizen's final moment with the police. Right. And around midnight, we hugged our cousin, telling him we'd love him and mm -hmm. we'd see him soon. Right. And then he walked away into the darkness, and it would be the last time we ever saw him alive. On August 8th, uh, Kaizen mm -hmm. walked down the block on Myrtle Avenue, as we all had done countless times as kids, ostensibly to ask a friend for a favor. His car was out of service, and he needed, ride to, he needed a ride to the shelter to get food. Somewhere along his walk, Kaizen got into an altercation with two neighbors, which pushed him over the edge. He retreated to our childhood home, where we had debated bone and wool on the, on the porch years earlier to retrieve a gun. Not the stainless steel nine millimeter from two years, two decades ago, but a military grade rifle filled with ammo. He put on a bulletproof vest and walked down uh, the street to kill two guys. Jason Cottle, a friend and a neighbor of Kaizen's attempted to quell the beef, but he got shot in the neck and he later died at University Hospital in Newark where Kaizen was born. Kaizen subsequently shot at everyone in sight, including neighbors he had known for three decades. A cop showed up and he shot the officer in the legs. For a couple minutes in the backyard of our childhood home where we played basketball together, Kaizen exchanged close to 100 rounds with the cops from the Irvington Police Department. He taunted the police every step of the way, daring them to shoot him. And they obliged. They shot Kaizen multiple times as he tried to open the side door to go home for one last time. For a moment, everything went still as he bled out, inching closer to death. The bullets stopped as the cops secured the perimeter around the house. What were his final thoughts when he died? Maybe he thought about his baby brother, mm -hmm. his mom, his daughters. We'll never know. It's easy to close the book on Kaizen by concluding he's a low-life criminal or a thug who deserved to die. Yet our understanding of history, law, philosophy, and psychology makes it impossible to conclude his story in such a simplistic manner. Kaizen committed a, a heinous crime, but his actions don't exist in a vacuum. Due to onerous racist drug laws and restricted racial covenants, Kaizen lived in a harsh ghetto without any wealth or employment prospects. He sold weed to make ends meet. Like many others, he did drugs to cope with the trauma of growing up in a violent inner city without a father. Oftentimes, the majority fails to contextualize the actions of the oppressed, focusing on the effects instead of the causes. They fail to understand the despair 
anguish and hopelessness felt as a result of living in abject poverty while under heavy policing. They create a false dichotomy where you're either a perpetrator or a victim. George Floyd's murder is a brutal reminder that the entire legal edifice from slavery to mass incarceration was designed to break down black people and brown people meticulously. This isn't accidental. This is a country made up of imaginary laws to aggressively protect corporations and property owning white men at the expense of black minds and bodies. This is the underlying premise of America. Until we reject this premise, dismantle the current system and build a new, our country will continue to treat black and brown people with enmity while white folks are allowed to violate laws, loot our spirits and break our minds and bodies with impunity. You guys can be the people to change this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Oh my God, bros. This is not exaggerated. I exaggerate often, so don't get it twisted. Um, And I'm not going to do the Bryant Gumbel post-game recap. Uh, All right, but seriously... revealed so much honesty and personal trauma. I think everyone out there can empathize in some way with having gone down a path and making choices that are based in trauma and systemic trauma. And I think you identified it, laid it out there. I have a friend who often talks about the difference between understanding something awful and condoning something awful. And I think think you've made it crystal clear that we have to look at horrible deeds even our own horrible deeds oh, yeah. and we understand them and that's not the same thing as condoning no, no, no. killing and murder and i i just want to thank you all i hope everybody i'm encouraging everybody to put their hands together or make some noise where you are be like yo yeah 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 say no, it out but you may you make a good point because we didn't i didn't have this perspective as i was like turning to drugs and alcohol until my cousin did what he did and then i and i saw what he was doing and i was like holy shit, I don't think, it could have been me. Like we came in the same environment and I'm doing things that I never thought that I would ever do. And suddenly I'm, I'm questioning it. Like I, I just hold the mirror up and I'm like, I don't want to end up like that. So I got to try to understand this guy from a different context, knowing that he did something that was horrible, but trying to, but understanding that he he grew up in such a wretched situation that that, that just didn't happen in a vacuum. You can't dismiss how he grew up. You can't dismiss the fact that there, there are policies in place that that force people to live a certain way. And it's going to be a reaction if, if you live in certain conditions. Again, not for everyone, but for some, for sure. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody, for still tuning in. Give big, you know, ah, send your love beams at your computer screens and phone screens from wherever you are. Um, there's a couple more things. Uh, I think there is a creative gift of some sort that we have to present to you. Oh, oh wow. yeah. Oh wow. I think so. I I'm I'm hoping that this is a reality. Oh, oh my god. I love it. That's I great. love it. That's, That's amazing. Yes, yes, yes. There's more information on it. It's not anonymous. It was painted by a Pops the Club grad named Jana Ray Nieto. Uh, and thank you. thank you, Jana. It's beautiful. I love it. 
She nailed she it. She got the jackets. She got the oh, jackets. She got the beard. The eyes. She got the beard. Perfect. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna melt. It to, oh, we're gonna oh, frame, we're it. Framing we're framing it. it. We're framing it. We're framing it. Thank you so much. Yay! Thank, Thank you. you for letting us share our story. This is this is an amazing experience. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas Brothers. I will never forget this. Thank you. Oh, man. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Pops, the club, for creating a forum for kids all around the country to create, to have these conversations, to delve into the honesty, to create amazing writing and anthologies, much like the Lucas Brothers are doing, um, to showcase uh, the amazing talents like Caleb and uh, the Wade Brothers at the beginning and Kylan. Um, Thank you, Keith and Kenny, again, uh, for your amazing, amazing stuff. I want to also thank all the partners who helped. You all um, are working at the front lines of social justice and especially the youth finding what's important and making it happen. Thank you all, each and every one of you, for doing what you do. Thank you very much for tuning in. Take care and have a wonderful night. Mm -hmm.